Hello. Welcome to LibriVox's New Releases Podcast Number 6, the new releases for October 2007. I'm Alan Drake, your host for this month. The LibriVox monthly podcasts bring you audio previews from our growing catalog. LibriVox provides free audiobooks from text in the public domain, including fiction, nonfiction, plays, short stories, poetry, children's literature, and audiobooks in languages other than English. As of the last day of October 2007, the LibriVox catalog contains over 1,001 public domain audiobooks, available for free download, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. 68 of these audiobooks were added during the month of October. Here are some of the new fiction releases for October 2007. LibriVox's short story collection 19, a collection of 10 short stories of fiction in the public domain read by a variety of LibriVox volunteers. The classic The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Molly Make-Believe by Eleanor Hallowell Abbott. Carl Stanton is an invalid suffering from an unusual bout of rheumatism. His fiancée is gone for the winter, and though he begs her to write to help ease his boredom and pain, she is stingy with her letters. She sends him what she calls a ridiculous circular, which he states is very apropos of his sentimental passions for letters. The morning was as dark and cold as city snow could make it. A dingy whirl at the window, a smoky gust through the fireplace, a shadow black as a bear's cave under the table. Nothing in all the cavernous room loomed really warm or familiar except a glass of stale water and a vapid half-eaten grapefruit. Packed into his pudgy pillows like a fragile piece of china, instead of a human being, Carl Stanton lay and cursed the brutal northern winter. Between his sturdy, restive shoulders the rheumatism snarled and clawed like some utterly frenzied animal trying to gnaw, gnaw, gnaw its way out. Along the tortured hollow of his back a red-hot plaster fumed and mulled and sucked at the pain like a hideously poisoned fang, trying to gnaw, gnaw, gnaw its way in. Worse than this, every four or five minutes an agony as miserably comic as a crashing blow on one's crazy bone went jarring and shuddering through his whole abnormally vibrant system. In Stanton's swollen fingers Cornelia's large crisp letter rustled not softly like a lady's skirts, but bleakly as an ice storm in December woods. Cornelia's whole angular handwriting, in fact, was not at all unlike a thicket of twigs stripped from root to branch of every possible softening leaf. "'Dear Carl,' crackled the letter, "'in spite of your unpleasant tantrum yesterday, because I... The Classic Howard's End by E. M. Foster Little Eve Egerton by Eleanor Hallowell Abbott Eve Egerton is not what she seems to be. A short encounter with Mr. Barton shows that first impressions are not always right or indicative of one's seemingly obvious preference or one's proclivity. Kim by Rudyard Kipling The Case of the Pocket Diary Found in the Snow 
by Augusta Groner. This is an account of some adventures in the professional experience of a member of the Imperial Austrian Police. Joseph Muller, Secret Service Detective of the Imperial Austrian Police, is one of the great experts in his profession. In personality, he differs greatly from other famous detectives. He has neither the impressive authority of Sherlock Holmes, nor the keen brilliancy of Monsieur Lecoq. Muller is a small, slight, plain-looking man, of indefinite age, and of much humbleness of mien. A naturally retiring, modest disposition, and two external causes, are the reasons for Muller's humbleness of manner, which is his chief characteristic. One cause is the fact that in early youth a miscarriage of justice gave him several years in prison, an experience which cast a stigma on his name, and which made it impossible for him, for many years after, to obtain honest employment. But the world is richer, and safer, by Muller's early misfortune. For it was this experience which threw him back on his own peculiar talents for livelihood, and drove him into the police force. Had he been able to enter any other profession, his genius might have been stunted to a mere pastime, instead of being, as now, utilized for the public good. Then, the red tape... Murder at Bridge by Anne Austin Inhabitants of the small town of Hamilton joke that they are afraid of being the dummy when playing bridge, for fear of being murdered. Meanwhile, Special Investigator Bonnie Dundee demands a reenactment of the death hand to try and find out why and how the victim was killed during a high-society bridge party. One by Crime by Frank Pinkerton Wives and Daughters by Elizabeth Gaskell If you like Jane Austen, you will probably like this book. Mrs. Gaskell, as she was often referred to, is considered one of the greatest British novelists of the Victorian era. She was one of the earliest novelists ever to use dialect in her works, finding often that no word but the vernacular would suffice to convey the meaning she wanted to achieve. THE SEAHAWK by Raphael Sabatini The story is set in the late sixteenth century, and concerns a Cornish seafaring gentleman, Sir Oliver Tresillian, who is villainously betrayed by a jealous brother. After being forced to serve as a slave on a Spanish galleon, Sir Oliver is liberated by Barbary pirates. He joins the pirates under the name Sakar el Bar, the Hawk of the Sea and swears vengeance against his brother. Starborn by Andre Norton This novel pictures a human colony in another galaxy, driven away from Earth generations ago by a repressive government. Considered outlaws, the colonists are in permanent hiding. They have developed friendship and cooperation with a local race of mermen, who are equally at home on land or sea. Fanny Herself by Edna Ferber This is the story of Fanny Brandeis, a young girl coming of age in the Midwest at the turn of the twentieth century. The author of this novel went on to win the Pulitzer Prize in 1925. 
This novel is the story of Fanny Brandeis, a sensitive young Jewish girl coming of age in the Midwest at the turn of the 20th century. It is generally considered to have been based on Ferber's own experiences growing up in Appleton, Wisconsin. Fanny's inner struggle between her compassionate artistic side and her desire for financial independence as a successful young businesswoman is the recurring theme of the novel. Ferber's engaging style of writing will quickly draw you into her story. The following excerpt is from the end of Chapter 8. Fanny winked the tears from her eyes almost wrathfully. She sat down, and there swept over her a feeling of finality. It was like the closing of Book One in a volume made up of three parts. She said to herself, Winnebago is ended, and my life here. How interesting that I should know that and feel it. It is like the first movement in one of the concertos Theodore was forever playing. Now for the second movement. It's got to be lively, fortissimo, presto. For so clever a girl as Fanny Brandeis, that was a stupid conclusion at which to arrive. How could she think it possible to shed her past life like a garment? Those impressionable years, between fourteen and twenty-four, could never be cast off. She might don a new cloak to cover the old dress beneath, but the old would always be there, its folds peeping out here and there, its outlines plainly to be seen. She might eat of things rare and drink of things costly, but the sturdy, stocky little girl in the made-over silk dress, who had resisted the devil in Weinberg's pantry on that long-ago day of atonement, would always be there at the feast. Myself, I confess, I am tired of these stories of young women who go to the big city, there to do battle with failure, to grapple with temptation, sin, and discouragement. So it may as well be admitted that Fanny Brandeis's story was not that of a painful hand-over-hand -hand climb. She was made for success. What she attempted, she accomplished. That which she strove for, she won. She was too sure, too vital, too electric for failure. No, Fanny Brandeis's struggle went on inside, and in trying to stifle it she came near making the blackest failure that a woman can make. In grubbing for the pot of gold, she almost missed the rainbow. The Murders of the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe Poe himself referred to this as the tale of ratiocination, featuring the brilliant deductions of C. August Dupin. It is today regarded as one of the first detective stories, and is almost certainly the first locked room mystery. Residing in Paris during the spring and part of the summer of 18-, I there became acquainted with a Monsieur C. Auguste Dupin. This young gentleman was of an excellent, indeed of an illustrious family, but, by a variety of untoward events, had been reduced to such poverty that the energy of his character succumbed beneath it, and he ceased to bestir himself in the world, or to care for the retrieval of his fortunes. By courtesy of his creditors, there still remained in his possession a small remnant of his patrimony, and upon the income arising from this, he managed, by means of a rigorous economy, to procure the necessaries of life, without troubling himself about its superfluities. Books, indeed, were his sole luxuries, and in Paris these are easily obtained. Our first meeting was at an obscure library in the Rue Montmartre, where the accident of our both being in search of the same very rare and very remarkable volume, brought us into closer communion. 
we saw each other again and again. Rudder Grage by Frank Stockton This book presents a number of short comedic sketches of a country life in middle America in the late 1800s. The hilarious twists and turns endear our adorable, naive married couple to the reader, and the orphan servant Pomona, dear, odd, funny Pomona, is the focus of several of the stories. Imagine a honeymoon in a lunatic asylum, and you've got Rudder Grange. For some months after our marriage, Euphemia and I boarded, but we did not like it. Indeed, there was no reason why we should like it. Euphemia said that she never felt at home, except when she was out, which feeling, indicating such an excessively unphilosophic state of mind, was enough to make me desire to have a home of my own, where, except upon rare and exceptional occasions, my wife would never care to go out. If you should want to rent a house, there are three ways to find one. One way is to advertise, another is to read the advertisements of other people. This is a comparatively cheap way. A third method is to apply to an agent. But none of these plans are worth anything. The proper way is to know someone who will tell you of a house that will exactly suit you. Euphemia and I thoroughly investigated this matter, and I know what I say is a fact. We tried all the plans. When we advertised, we had about a dozen admirable answers, but in these, although everything seemed to suit, the amount of rent was not named. None of those in which the rent was named would do at all. And when I went to see the owners or agents of these suitable houses, they asked much higher rents than those mentioned in the unavailable answers, and this notwithstanding the fact that they always asserted that their terms were either very reasonable or else greatly reduced on account of the season being advanced. It was now the 15th of May. Euphemia and I once wrote a book. This was just before we were married. An Antarctic Mystery or The Sphinx of the Ice Fields by Jules Verne The Shortstop by Zane Grey And now on to the non-fiction. A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt, and Italy by Ida Laura Pfeiffer Translated by H. W. Dulkin Ida Pfeiffer traveled alone in an era when women didn't travel. She went first on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and then went on to Egypt and Italy. Understanding the difficulties a woman would face traveling alone and on a budget, she made a will before she left. Go she did, however, and upon her return she wrote this book. She used the proceeds to finance her next trip, six months in Iceland. The Loss of the SS Titanic by Lawrence Beasley this is a first-hand account written by a survivor of the Titanic about that fateful night and the events leading up to it, as well as the events that followed its sinking. Historic Newspaper Articles, Volume 2, by various authors. This is a collection of 20 public domain newspaper articles comprising two volumes. Topics covered are the Triangle Shirt Waste Factory Fire, the Troubles of Typhoid Mary, and How to Dress for the Seashore and they vary in length and tone. Democracy in America, Volume 1, by Alexis de Tocqueville When de Tocqueville visited America in 1830, 
he found a thriving democracy of a kind he had not seen anywhere else. Here are many of his insightful observations of American society and political system. North America presents in its external form certain general features which it is easy to discriminate at the first glance. A sort of methodical order seems to have regulated the separation of land and water, mountains and valleys. A simple but grand arrangement is discoverable amidst the confusion of objects and the prodigious variety of scenes. This continent is divided, almost equally, into two vast regions, one of which is bounded on the north by the Arctic Pole and by the two great oceans on the east and west. It stretches towards the south, forming a triangle whose irregular sides meet at length below the great lakes of Canada. The second region begins where the other terminates, and includes all the remainder of the continent. The one slopes gently towards the pole, the other towards the equator. The territory comprehended in the first region descends towards the north with so imperceptible a slope that it may almost be said to form a level plain. Within the bounds of this immense tract of country there are neither high mountains nor deep valleys. Streams meander through it irregularly. Great rivers mix their currents, separate and meet again, disperse and form vast marshes, losing all trace of their channels in the labyrinth of waters they have themselves created, and thus at length, after innumerable windings, fall into the polar seas. The great lakes which bound this first region are not walled in, like most of those in the old world, South, the story of Shackleton's last expedition, 1914 to 1917, by Ernest Shackleton. Shackleton's most famous expedition was planned to be an attempt to cross Antarctica from the Wendell Sea to the Atlantic, to the Ross Sea south of the Pacific by way of the Pole. It set out from London on the 1st of August, 1814, and reached the Wendell Sea on the 10th of January, 1915. Squirrels and Other Fur Bearers by John Burroughs This is a collection of essays by the American naturalist and essayist John Burroughs. It provides fascinating insights into the daily life of small woodland creatures. This Country of Ours, Part 1, by H. E. Marshall. This is Marshall's book of stories from the history of the United States and begins with accounts of exploration and settlement. And now another Titanic story, The Sinking of the Titanic and Great Sea Disasters by Logan Marshall. This is a detailed and accurate account of the most awful marine disaster in history constructed from the real facts as attained from those on board who survived. The general feeling aboard the ship after the boats had left her sides was that she would not survive her wound, but the passengers who remained aboard displayed the utmost heroism. William T. Steed, the famous English journalist, was so little alarmed that he calmly discussed with one of the passengers the probable height of the iceberg after the Titanic had shot into it. Confidence in the ability of the Titanic to remain afloat doubtlessly led many of the passengers to death. The theory that the great ship was unsinkable remained with hundreds who had entrusted themselves to the gigantic hulk, long after the officers knew that the vessel could not survive. 
The captain and officers behaved with superb gallantry, and there was perfect order and discipline among those who were aboard, even after all hope had been abandoned for the salvation of the ship. Many women went down, steerage women, who were unable to get to the upper decks where the boats were launched, maids who were overlooked in the confusion, cabin passengers who refused to desert their husbands, or who had reached the decks after the last of the lifeboats was gone and the ship was settling for her final plunge to the bottom of the Atlantic. Narratives of survivors do not bear out the supposition that the final hours upon the vessel's decks were passed in darkness. They say the electric lighting plant held out until the last, and that even as they watched the ship sink, The Fighting Governor, A Chronicle of Frontenac by Charles William Colby The Canada to which Frontenac came in 1672 was no longer the infant colony it had been when Richelieu founded the company of 100 associates. Though its inhabitants numbered less than 7,000, institutions under which they lived could not have been more elaborate or precise. In short, the divine right of the king to rule over his people was proclaimed as loudly in the colony as in the motherland. The Insurrection in Dublin by James Stevens The Easter Rising was a rebellion staged in Ireland on Easter week, 1916. The Rising was an attempt by militant Irish Republicans to win independence from Britain by force of arms. The day before the Rising was Easter Sunday and they were crying joyfully in the churches, Christ has risen. On the following day, they were saying in the streets, Ireland has risen. The look of the moment was with her. The auguries were good, and notwithstanding all that has succeeded, I do not believe she must take to the earth again, nor be ever again buried. The pages hereafter were written day by day during the insurrection that On the Elementary Electrical Charge by Robert Milliken. The experiments herewith reported were undertaken with the view of introducing certain improvements into the oil drop method of determining E and N, and thus obtaining a higher accuracy than had before been possible in the evaluation of these most fundamental constants. The Art of War by Sun Tzu. The Art of War is a Chinese military treatise, written during the 6th century BC by Sun Tzu, composed of 13 chapters, each of which is devoted to one aspect of warfare. It has long been praised as the definitive work on military strategies and tactics of its time. 11 Thesis on Führerbach by Karl Marx here are eleven short philosophical notes written by Karl Marx in 1845. They outline a critique of the ideas of Marx's fellow young Hegelian philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach. These theses form a basis for the activism emphasized by Marx's works, and this short text is perhaps best known for its ending, a eureka for revolutionary socialism. Miscellaneous Essays by Thomas De Quincey. The Hunter Thompson of the 19th century, De Quincey is best known for his Confessions of an English Opium Eater, 
an activity shared with his hero, Samuel Coleridge, much to Wordsworth's dismay. However, de Quincey's literary genius is best captured in his essays, and according to Wikipedia, his immediate influence extended to Edgar Allan Poe, Fitzhugh Ludlow, and Charles Baudelaire, but even major 20th century writers were influenced as well. Well, that's it for the nonfiction, and now on to audiobooks for children. The Good Naughty Book by Sarah Corey Rippey. The Good Naughty Book was originally published as two books back to back. Opening the book from one end, the reader experiences the goody side, where the children are polite and thoughtful. However, turning the book over and beginning from the other side, one reads the naughty side, where the children are lazy and irritable. When Honor Bright went to live in the country, the very first thing he asked for was some real live geese to join the chickens and the pussy and the rabbits already on the farm. "'Will you remember to feed them every day, son, if I get you a pair?' asked his father. "'Yes, Papa,' said the little boy. "'Honor bright!' When he promised honor bright, he always kept his word, and he said honor bright so many times a day that finally honor bright became his name. "'Quack, quack!' cried Mr. and Mrs. Goose, the day honor bright's father brought them home. "'What a fine place!' "'Isn't it?' said Mother Hen." "'And just wait till you know Honor Bright.' "'Just wait,' echoed the Rabbit Gray family and Mr. T. Cat. "'Honor Bright was as good as his word, "'and the geese grew fatter and fatter and fatter. "'Good morning, Mr. T. Cat,' cried Mr. and Mrs. Goose early one morning. "'Had your breakfast?' "'Of course,' answered Mr. T. Cat. "'Honor Bright always feeds me the very first thing.' "'You must be mistaken,' cried Mr. and Mrs. Goose.' Honor Bright always feeds us first. But Honor Bright gives my children their breakfast very early, cackled Mother Hen. Well, squeaked Father Rabbit Gray, we've all had breakfast, and that's the main thing. Now let's make Honor Bright president, because he's so good. That's the way people do, you know. The House That Jack Built, with the author unknown. The House That Jack Built is a standard of juvenile literature that delights children and adults alike and the increasingly lengthy sentences stretch to the breaking point that make up its narrative. Through a chain of events, beginning with a rodent eating some grain and culminating in a festive wedding, children learn that playing with grammar can be fun. The Burgess Book for Children by Thornton W. Burgess the Burgess Bird Book for Children is a zoological book written in the form of a story featuring Peter Rabbit. Peter learns from his friend Jenny Wren all about the birds of North America, and we meet many of them in the old orchard, the green meadow, and the green forest. Lipperty lipperty lip scampered Peter Rabbit behind the tumble-down stone wall along one side of the old orchard. It was early in the morning, very early in the morning. In fact, jolly bright Mr. Sun had hardly begun his daily climb up in the blue-blue sky. It was nothing unusual for Peter to see jolly Mr. Sun get up in the morning. It would be more unusual for Peter not to see him, for you know Peter is a great hand to stay out all night and not go back to the dear old briar patch where his home is until the hour when most folks are just getting out of bed. 
Peter had been out all night this time, but he wasn't sleepy, not the least teeny-weeny bit. You see, sweet Mistress Spring had arrived, and there was so much happening on every side, and Peter was so afraid he would miss something, that he wouldn't have slept at all if he could have helped it. Peter had come over to the old orchard so early this morning to see if there had been any new arrivals the day before. "'Birds are funny creatures,' said Peter, as he hopped over a low place in the old stone wall and was fairly in the old orchard. "'Tut, tut, 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 tut,' cried a rather sharp, scolding voice. "'Tut, tut, 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 tut. "'You don't know what you were talking about, Peter Rabbit. "'They are not funny creatures at all. "'They are the most sensible folks in all the wide world.'" Peter cut a long hop short Greylorn by Keith Laumer. Commander Greylorn has a problem. No, actually, he has two of them. It's not enough that the remaining residents of Earth have pinned their last hope of salvation on him and his mission. He has to find a colony that presumably was established at an unknown star two centuries before and beg for their help. But first, he has the small matter of a mutiny on board his starship. The people are trying to kill him. And now on to philosophy and religion. The Revelation of St. John from the American Standard Version. This is the only biblical book that is wholly composed of apocalyptic literature. The Book of Lei Tzu by Lei Tzu. Translated by Lionel Giles. Here is a Taoist text, believed to have been compiled in the 4th century CE. This text is generally considered to be the most practical of the major Taoist works, compared to the philosophical writings of Lao Tzu and the poetic narrative of Chuang Tzu. Although this book had not been extensively published in the West, some passages are well known. The book explores a number of classic Taoist themes, such as the relativity of all knowledge, the ideas of simplicity and effortless spontaneity, and the importance of calmly accepting death. And now on to poetry. Holy Sonnets of John Donne John Donne was a Jacobian poet and preacher, representative of the metaphysical poets of his period. His works, notably for their realistic and sensual style, include sonnets, love poetry, religious poems, Latin translations, epigrams, elegies, songs, satires, and sermons. His poetry is noted for his vibrancy of language and immediacy of metaphor, compared with that of his contemporaries. Towards the end of his life, Dunn wrote works that challenged death and the fear that it inspired in many men, on the grounds of his belief that those who die are sent to heaven to live eternally. One example of his challenge is his Holy Sonnet 10, from which comes the famous line, Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou think'st thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, 
nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which yet thy pictures be, Much pleasure, then, from thee much more must low, And soonest our best men with thee do go, Rest of their bones and soul's delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings and desperate men, And dost with poison, war and sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well, And better than thy stroke. Why swell'st thou then? One short sleep past we wake eternally, And death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Tender Buttons by Gertrude Stein Short Poetry Collections 50 and 51 each collection contains ten poems, selected and read by a LibriVox volunteer. Here's an example. The Wicked Zebra by Frank Rowe Batchelder The zebra always seems malicious. He kicks and bites most all the time. I fear that he's not only vicious, but guilty of some dreadful crime. The mere suggestion makes me falter in writing of this wicked brute. Although he has escaped the halter, he wears for life a convict suit. The Owl by Edward Thomas Downhill I came, hungry, and yet not starved. Cold, yet had heat within me that was proof against the north wind. Tired, yet so that rest had seemed the sweetest thing under a roof. Then at the inn I had food, fire, and rest, knowing how hungry, cold, and tired was I. All of the night was quite barred out except an owl's cry, a most melancholy cry, shaken out long and clear upon the hill. No merry note, nor cause of merriment, but one telling me plain what I escaped, and others could not that night, as in I went. And salted was my food and my repose, salted and sobered too by the bird's voice, speaking for all who lay under the stars, soldiers and poor, unable to rejoice. October by Paul Lawrence Dunbar LibriVox volunteers bring you 19 different recordings of Dunbar's poem, October. This was the weekly poetry project for the week of October 7th. The Ghost's Moonshine by Thomas Lovell Beddoes. Here LibriVox volunteers bring you 14 different recordings of this poem. The Ballad of the Harp Weaver by Edna St. Vincent Millay. LibriVox volunteers bring you seven different recordings of the Ballad of the Harp Weaver. Sister Rosa, a Ballad, by Percy Biss Shelley. Here LibriVox volunteers bring you seven different recordings of this poem. In a Garden, by Amy Lowell. This lovely poem had sixteen different volunteers recording it. The Verse Book of a Homely Woman, by Faye Inchfawn. This was originally published by the Religious Tract Society of London. The Verse Book of Homely Woman is a collection of domestic, spiritual, and fanciful poems from the point of view of a woman, a housewife, and a Christian.
the natural supernatural and solidly mundane are mixed together as well as separated into two parts indoors and outdoors and for this month in languages other than english was book twelve of favoli by jean de la fontaine this book renews aesop's tradition representing the human comedy demonstrating the author's love for country life and by symbolic animals he ironized about his current year's society's life and for dramatic works this month there is shakespeare's monologues volume four here's a sample i know that virtue to be in you brutus from julius caesar act one scene two i know that virtue to be in you brutus as well as i do know your outward favor well honor is the subject of my story I cannot tell what you and other men think of this life, but for my single self, I had as lief not be as live to be in awe of such a thing as I myself. I was born free as Caesar. So were you. We both have fed as well, and we can both endure the winter's cold as well as he. For once, upon a raw and gusty day, the troubled Tiber chafing with her shores, Caesar said to me, Durst thou, Cassius, now leap in with me into this angry flood. Thank you for listening. To listen to more samples, visit the LibriVox website to get links to all of our audio feeds. Every LibriVox recording contains the following statement. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. You're always welcome to visit the LibriVox site to download audiobooks and shorter works, to join the open forum, and yes, to volunteer. We have hundreds of friendly volunteers from all over the world, every continent, helping to produce free audiobooks, each volunteering in her own way. See you soon. <laughs>